This is a story about a young woman running away and finding her home. It begins with the moment she decides to run, when she faces a painful truth about her boyfriend. Vega stood in the middle of the kitchen, with her left arm bound so tightly behind her back, the tendons in her shoulder gave way to a sharp pop. She closed her lips to keep a moan inside. Don't laugh at me. Her boyfriend, Zach. Fingers so tight, her hand had gone numb. That's narrator Kay Illuvian, bringing the characters to life in your ears. We're talking about A Light in the Forest, a Colorado Book Award finalist on this Desideratum. A Desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, and I think this story is full of essential things. This week, we're talking about being a work in progress with author Melissa Payne, whose new novel, A Light in the Forest, got us talking about small towns and pigs and intuition. The book opens with an aggression, like it begins with this trauma of a young mother with a a two-month-old baby realizing that she is in danger from her partner. For you, why did the book open right there? Why do we need to see that character in that moment, do you think? Because Vega was stuck. Mm. She was stuck thinking she was living the life that she had wanted. And in reality, she was living the exact opposite. And she needed something to really make her look at herself, make her look in the mirror and go, I need to get out of here. Her head buzzed, her senses assaulted, overwhelmed with the smallest details. The reader is with her, is really in her head as she's realized, she's coming to this realization about what is going on. And she hears a voice in her head. Panic, twisting knots into her stomach. Her mother's voice in her head. Run. And that was her her intuition, her gut telling her, you are in a situation that you don't want to be in. And you need to, to recognize. I mean, people, women uh, and men in, in domestic violence situations, when you love a person, it's not like there's a, there really isn't a switch that's flipped. That's like, oh, this is a bad person. You love a person. You are loved by that person. Right. And so it gets very um, intermixed and, and intertwined and tangled up. And it's not an easy thing to walk away from. And so while I'm showing her at the moment when she chooses to, we also understand that this wasn't the first moment. This was just the final one. The one that made where she, but it was more of like, you know, a, a tower being built and slowly toppling as opposed to a, you know, a quick light, a switch going on. And, and I, I felt that for her, that she had felt trapped, but not completely because she still thought this was my choice. I chose to be here. I wanted this. And so it was that her, for her, it seems like we're out of here, but this was building for her. And in writing that scene, and I don't love violence for violence sake. I don't, th- this one probably has more violence in it 
But to me, it did feel important to show that for some of the characters, maybe just to show their story. Um, but as we learn with Vega, she's not defined by that violence and she's not defined by that relationship either. And as she, nor is she defined by her rootless childhood. Yeah. You know, or her mother who had to figure out how to live uh, despite her tragic past. And so for me, it was it was um, the right place to start in order to watch her and journey with her as she realizes that, you know, her life is is more about that, that she's defined by so much more than one than that relationship. Yes. So in that moment in the beginning, she listens to her intuition and she does run. And then we learn about, you know, she gets into this van, um, which she's is a holdover from her own childhood. Um, she's only recently, right, in the last year, lost her mom. And the van is about her childhood and her and her connection to her mom. And that is the vehicle, literally, for her escape. I love the autonomy of that. I think this is going to sound silly, but I think during COVID, like the idea of conversion vans and hitting the road and camping and, you know, having that sort of a nomadic lifestyle became more, um, I don't know, maybe it's because I also live in Colorado, but I felt like that was a more, like, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a thing. So I didn't have any trouble accepting that, that she had lived that way. But where, so where did that come from? Do you have, have you been nomadic ever in your life? Like, was that from something of your own experience? You know, sometimes I wish I knew where ideas came from. And sometimes I'm like, where are they living inside of me? But they just, there's a place they all live. But that one, actually, I did. That one is kind of funny. I was on uh, the hot 285, you know, 285. And there I was driving and a conversion van passed me hauling a trailer that looked like it had tools in it. That was pretty much it. <laughs> I see that and I'm like, oh, and a woman was driving. A woman was driving. And I was just, you know, where, well, where's she going? What's she doing? And sometimes that's all it takes is just seeing somebody pass you by. And you just want to like reach out and ask them, what's your story? What's going on here? And um, fortunately, since I'm a writer, I get to, you know, tap into imagination. But that then quickly went to this idea of, uh, people in domestic violence situations uh, who need an escape, who need to get out. And um, I thought of this handy woman for women and this idea of a woman who who had her own tragedy that she was having to process on her own, her own trauma that she was having to process on her own. She didn't have all the tools. She didn't have all the help or the, the counseling, the therapy, even a support group in the beginning. And so she's this individual who has something deep inside of her. And she's like, I'm going to survive this. May not look pretty, <laughs> but I'm going to make it happen. And so she grows into this young mother and woman who, oh, I can fix things. And so she is a handy woman for women and also can help them escape dangerous situations. And then through that develops this network of other women that she's helped who, and it grows into this thing that is all Vega knows, right? As she's grown up, it's all she's known. It's been her world. So that's kind of where that, where it started and then how it grew. Yeah. It just occurred to me, actually, that you, you do that at the heart of this story a couple times because Eve is also a person 
who can't say no to someone in need, that she also sees her life, how she exists in the world as to be someone that wouldn't turn their back on someone else. The bell above the door rang, and Joshua Harrison, Levi's youngest grandson, walked in. Again, this is narrator Kay Alluvian. Eve felt the words grow stale on her tongue. Her pulse quickened. Joshua Harrison had come to ask her a question that would make the exact kind of trouble Eve wanted to avoid. But she couldn't say no. She knew firsthand what happened when family turned their backs on one of their own. And so often people who do choose to help, it is because they've experienced something similar or relatable. Um, and it drives, it drives us. It drives us to continue to reach out and try to change that cycle for others. I did feel like where you take us with this main character, this small town itself felt like a character. And I think maybe what it is is I feel like it is an, a small town, right? And there's something about that, that kind of microcosm of things that's very attractive for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm very drawn to small towns. Um, not that I don't think these same stories happen in big cities. They absolutely do. My experience is definitely more on a small town side. And I think it's really interesting when you can put characters up against each other in intimate settings where they can't necessarily get away from one another. You have They have to kind of confront more um, whatever is happening or whatever they're And a lot of my stories do deal with stereotypes and perceptions, and this book is no different. The article I'd read that just really got me about a farm in Appalachian, it wasn't Ohio, but it was in the Appalachian region of the country. And it was for non-binary, transgender, queer individuals who wanted to create kind of this like safe haven. And they farmed and they um, raised animals. And they had, there were some direct references from this article um, that they had trouble with the community. But one thing that was a quote that was in there was this person said, you know, the thing is in the city, there's a lot of hate, but it's anonymous. Here, I know the person's name who doesn't agree with me. And we still have to go to the same store. Like there's more of this like personal, we have to look each other in the eye. And so that brought a whole nother level. And so it was such a fascinating story and a reality for these folks that really inspired me in this story. Yes, that's a really good point, that the smallness of the town makes people less anonymous. That, And maybe that uh, requires people to rethink their hate. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because you create this character, Eve, and you're, you don't shy at all away from her history and some of the violence of that. She's so integral to this story. Yeah. What was very important to me for Eve, and Kay really captured this for me. She's talking about Kay Illuvian, the audiobook narrator. She's very talented. What was very important to me was that we didn't start this book with preconceived notions about this person, that we got to know her from the inside out, her hopes, her dreams, her desires in life, and that we weren't sitting there as a reader, already with a, with a, a picture in our head. 
So it was really important to me not to be, not to surprise a reader. That was not at all what I was attempting to do or, or were important to me at all. I want readers, as I do with all my characters, to get to know my characters from the inside out. That's a really great way to explain it. I did really love getting to know her. And I think one of the cool things that you do is you give her sort of a level of wisdom um, that you explain through an NDE. So you have her experience something and actually the experience is then tied to a mystery that unfolds for us through the whole book. But she has an experience with death. She has a near-death experience. And what does that do for her? So NDEs, if you ever get a chance to do a little bit of research, are are fascinating. Um, How similar they can be for people across um, cultures and belief systems. And so they're really fascinating. And Eve's gave her, going to that very precipice of life, um, many people who come back for that are forever changed. Um, There's just some great equalizer that happens. And so being able to have that for Eve just gave her that kind of, I like, I do always like sometimes, not all my stories have a magical element, but this was my second one that did. And I always like a little bit of magic in my story. So Eve allowed that little bit of magic, that little bit of intuition, you know, in some ways intuition is, I completely believe that we have intuition. Maybe sometimes it's stronger in certain parts of our life than other parts, but that it's there. And Eve is kind of that personification of intuition. Yes. So you call it her knowing. That's how she refers to it. And she'll have a sense of something. And one of the things I loved about it is that then she's compelled to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. She not, not only does she have these intuitions, these knowings, but then it's part, part of who she is, is to be completely transparent or as honest as she can about what she thinks she's experiencing and sensing about someone else. Right. And yet she's not infallible in her, in her knowings. Like she thinks like many of us, we think we know something. We don't know if this is the right thing to say to someone. And sometimes we take that leap of faith and we're honest and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so, you know, while she's got this kind of like different experience behind her to back that up, we all kind of can do that in little pieces of our lives um, that we can relate to her and her need to be honest. I wrote down a couple of the things that she said because I just thought it was so, I don't know. I, I always am amazed when an author can speak through a character that way and have um, have almost sort of a transcendent message. You know, like there's something that the reader will go, oh, that struck here. Um, and yet it's a character in a fiction. It's just a story. I write in a way where I'm trying to find um, places where maybe I can relate to characters myself. So I can't write a character if I can't relate or empathize with them. Right? Sure. So as writers and as readers, we learn to look for those places where we can relate, where we are similar or different, where our kind of spheres, you know, kind of uh, overlap we hear somebody else's story and we're able to process different experiences through our lenses as well. And so that as a writer, it's really important to me. I have to be able to understand and relate to these characters. It's part of the process that I absolutely love. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. I was going to ask you about Cooney Coonies. Part of an odd, like, I was like, oh, what? What is this? But they actually, can you talk a little bit about how important pigs are to the story? Actually, this story started with the pigs um, in another version, like a whole nother version. I had heard about there was an infestation of these, um, the little pigs, not the Cooney Coonies, but these little pigs that people had gotten as pets. And after a hurricane um, that had wiped out um, some homes, people weren't coming back. Their pet pigs had become feral and were overtaking the island. So the the story was about the the people who lived there in this village um, trying to take their village back and all the ways they were trying to get these pigs. And the pigs were, I mean, they were just so destructive. And resourceful, smart animals. And resourceful, yeah. But the story was really good. The, the couple of people they interviewed just had also just a bit of humor about them as they talked about it. And so I was just, you know, I just found it compelling. So then as I started to do research about pigs, I came across Cooney Coonies, which they um, are used in, um, like, instead of plows, more of a natural plow for you can put a couple in a field and they will naturally plow your field. And they're friendly. And while I was in southeastern Ohio for one of my research trips, um, there was a Cooney Cooney breeder around there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is a natural way to um, take care of your land. Okay, so there are literal pigs in the story, in the town, but then there are also pigs in people's dreams. Mm -hmm. Where did that, is that real? Did you make that up? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. There's always an element in truth. I've never heard that before. I know, me either. Me either. But um, I knew that Betty had these, Betty really, um, that, that came from Betty, who had these dreams about pigs that she took meaning from, right? And she would say, well, I dreamt of a pig doing this, and that means it's going to be a good day for you. And I dreamt of a pig doing that. And it is, um, it is real. There are some thoughts and mythology behind pigs. Actually, a lot of animals have something associated with them. And for me, it was just kind of fun to extend that to Betty, uh, to allow her to have some sort of what she thinks is her own bits of knowing. Um, who's to say they're not? Um, but particularly in this area that's kind of rife with folklore and stories. That's what it reminded me of, folklore. And there's always a hint of truth to folklore, right? There's always some layer that's really attractive, um, especially to people who who trust intuition sometimes, right? Who think, hmm, you should go with your gut on that. Right. And who's to say our dreams aren't reflections of our intuition, just in whatever form we um, we understand it best in? Yes. Yes. I really enjoyed them. I think. I think towards the end, I was like, of course, of course. it's the And I'm a no spoiler. I won't give anything away in this. But I just was like, I love that you tied that all together. And here we are back with the pig. <laughs> I'm so glad you did, because that was very fun for me. I really enjoyed the pigs, too. <laughs> There's humor. You know, this is you've taken on some fairly dark topics. And yet there's there is also there is a light. There is a light in the forest. So I see you shining that across all of this, these dark themes in the story. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, That is very important to me and was particularly important to me in this story because it does deal with such heavy and very real topics um, and very real things that happen to people. And so, but I didn't want to dwell there because the point wasn't the ugliness. The point was, how do we overcome that? How do families, communities support one another? Even when we don't see eye to eye, even when we don't even agree with the way somebody else lives, how do we overcome that in, in good times and in bad? Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that I just search for myself maybe. And so I want to see how I can tell a story like that with the characters um, anytime I'm showing it. I love stories about found family and intergenerations. Um, and I just, I'm very drawn to that. And in my storytelling, it just keeps, it's a theme that keeps popping up in one way or another. Yeah, I think that you you allow people to be a refuge for other people. Like we were talking about how there's these sincere acts of helping someone else, but you also have like physical places of refuge. You know, the conversion van is a place of refuge for her from the very beginning. There is a bus abandoned sort of in the forest at the edge of Betty's property, and that becomes a refuge. And so I like this idea of, of refuge. Um running throughout the story. One of the things I noticed was you, in your acknowledgments, you do mention the Tenacious Unicorn Ranch. Mm -hmm. You also mention your dad. In the acknowledgments, you say, your voice, your questions, your enthusiasm and worry are all here. I just, I just really love that. Talk a little bit about how he's in this story. So my dad, um, he was amazing. Thanks thanks for asking about him because it's always nice to talk about him. He was one of my big cheerleaders, you know, when I first started out in writing. So with this book, it was actually uh, the beginning of the illness that we didn't know would eventually take him. But I was with him quite a bit, taking him to appointments um, a couple times a week. So we were in the car as I was coming up with the story. And he heard it from the beginning of the pigs <laughs> and the school bus in the woods. When I, when I have all these ideas and I think, how can, how can I bring these all together? What is the story that I'm trying to tell here? And when I get out of my own way, the characters often lead me there. Um, but when I'm in my own way, I'm talking and I'm bringing in other people. And so my dad would say, I don't understand the story. What, what, what is your message here? And what is your focus with Eve? And what is your, he, he just asked all the right questions. And, um, and some weren't the right questions. Some I fought against. And I said, Dad, no, you don't understand what I'm doing here. And he goes, well, then explain it to me. And so we had a whole lot of fun time in the car just talking. And, um, and that, you know, and on a personal level, I could relate to Vega and losing her mom. That felt very personal for me, um, wanting her advice. There were so many times that I want my dad's advice. And when you can't get that anymore, you have to remember who they were, what they would have said maybe. And you need to kind of rely a little bit more on your memory and then what they've taught you. And so I, that was very personal. Her journey with just, you know, trying to find her new place without her mom, um, I could relate to at the time. So can. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I love the I love the visual of you talking through the story with him. You know, you the way you explain inspiration, even though you said like you never know where an idea comes from. But I think the way that you move through life is in observation and is in acknowledgement that everyone has a story. And you're just you you have you have a curiosity about that as you're moving through life. Absolutely. I I kind of firmly believe most writers do, but I definitely, I I do write from an observational standpoint. I mean, I I have to soak stuff in uh, before I can put it on the paper. I'm right now, I'm in the middle of working on my next, I finished my last story. Uh, It's called The Wild Road Home that comes out next year. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm in the creative brainstorming process of the next one, which is so fun. It's a fun stage to be in. Yeah. And and this is kind of based on my mom, after my dad died, moved to a um, retirement village, like their apartments. So everyone's independent living. And the people there are fascinating and their stories. This part of life where many are dealing with loss and grief, and yet there's this vibrancy and this beauty to the stage of life too. And so all I have to do is go visit my mom <laughs> and talk to people and it, I, I feel inspired. Yes, there's so many stories. Mm-hmm. There's so many stories. Yeah, we bought the house that we live in, we bought from someone in his 80s. Erwin uh-huh. lost his wife and his kids, they didn't want him living alone. And so they put the house on the market and we came out with all three kids and looked at it. I fell in love with it. I had a dream that night. I had a dream that night. You want to talk about dreams and intuition. I had a dream that night that there was a turret on it. And I woke up and I told my husband, I think it's a castle. So we go back, we schedule a second viewing and we come back out and the buyer, the buyer and the seller are not supposed to meet. Right. No, but he would not leave the house. He (sighs) wanted to know who was buying it. Oh, so the second time we come out, he's here in his chair. And Bill had brought like a structural engineer because he was worried we're in this bluff and he was worried the whole thing was going to fall off the hill. So he brought an engineer with him. And so he's in the basement looking at the foundation and I'm having a chitty chat with Irwin and getting to know him. And I said, I just want you to know, I had a dream that this house is our castle. And I just really, like, I just love it. And I love this land. And he starts to cry. And I was like, oh, I'm Irwin, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. And he's pulling out his wallet. And he opens up his wallet and he pulls out a business card and he hands me a business card. And it says, Erwin and Rhonda Steiner, Castle Oaks Alpacas. Oh my gosh. Wow. That gave me chills. I still get chills thinking about it. And we bought the house. Of course you did. It was one of the great gifts of my life. It was really just a great thing. And wow. Anyway, I just, I'm with you. I think there are a lot of stories. I do like to come back to this, the the reason I called the podcast Desideratum, this idea that there are essential things, life lessons that we all sort of carry with us and everybody carries something different. I'm always amazed when I ask this question, actually. Uh, but for you, what what is the Desideratum? What is, what is the essential thing that when someone says, what's most essential, what would you say? I've been thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask it. And... <laughs> For me, it's uh, be a work in progress. Um, the way I approach my writing isn't ever to write it to, into perfection. I'm very aware that that will never happen, but I'm okay with that. And I love the process of, con- of improving my writing each time and with each book. 
because I hope to do this career until I'm Irwin's age. <laughs> and, um, and I hope with each year of my life, I bring something new to my stories. And so as a person, I'm okay that I'm a work in progress because it means I'm, I'm continuing to learn and evolve and change. And I kind of think that's the essence of living. And and for me, also part of my craft. Yeah. I've heard the take on rewrite and revision in a different emotion. Like I just recently talked to an author who was like, it's horrific. The rewrite is horrific. <laughs> but what you're saying is actually the rewrite is the thing that is, it is always in progress, in process. Life to me is about that the learning and growing and I don't think we get to adulthood and suddenly we're like we're done I'm good I did it it's the same thing I'm not I'm still changing and evolving as a person it's what I want my kids to take away I don't ever want my children to think they have to be they have to attain a certain thing and then all is good yeah I want to be 89 years old and still learning I don't care what it looks like (laughs) if it's rollerblading at 89 it's gonna be rollerblading if it's learning a new language maybe it's that but I'm just okay. I, I want that for my children. And I try to remind that for myself. And then it distills down into my writing. And I think that's why with my writing and with my books, I, yes, rewrites can be grueling. Edits can be grueling. But there is beauty in it too. Yeah. And I think it's where the real writing happens um, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, that is so, it's so true for your kids too. Because I think we pin a lot of like, attain a goal, but it's important to enjoy also right now, which is the process part right now. Right. And not to be morbid, but our finish line is death. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, nobody gets out of this alive. Nobody gets out of this alive. So if our finish line is that, then what can we do all along the way to improve as a person and to affect change, whether that's in ourselves or around us? I hope you enjoyed getting to know Melissa Payne as much as I did. I want to thank the Colorado Sun for shining their light on Melissa. I listen to the Sun's podcast called The Daily Sun Up. It's a great way to start your day. If you're curious about Colorado culture, history, news of all kinds delivered to your ears. Then every Sunday, I check out the Sun Lit feature at coloradosun.com for author spotlights and local independent bookstore recommendations. Sunlit editor Kevin Simpson often talks to authors on the Daily Sunup's Friday podcast. Check it out at coloradosun.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, a big thank you to the author, Melissa Payne, the narrator, Kay Alluvian, the audio publisher, Brilliance Audio, and the audiobook production team at Dion Audio, Devin Hammond and Yanni Caldas, for their work on A Light in the Forest. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>